Welcome to the Literature Lady Podcast. My name is Dr. Janet Bartholomew, and I'm here with a special guest today, my microbiologist in residence, none other than the Twitter famous, <laughs> he's looking at me funny, um, my husband, Dr. Clinton Bartholomew. Thanks for uh, having me, hon. You're welcome. And thank you so much for doing this for us. I've had a lot of questions. A lot of people know about you through my Twitter feed online. And so because we had so many questions, I decided to ask you if you would be so generous as to be on the podcast and to answer some of these questions for us today. So I'm going to give a bit of a disclaimer. Um, first of all, this is a bit unusual for this podcast in that I'm not going to tell the story of an early modern lady today. And so we're going to talk about the COVID-19 virus. And I do have a special surprise at the end of the podcast that I have not told my significant other about yet. So there is going to be a little early modern twist at the end. But just to let you know, we both have doctorates, but we're not that kind of doctor. <laughs> so please don't take any of this as medical advice or in place of actual consultations with physicians and other medical personnel. If you feel like you're sick and you need to know about what to do in terms of your own health, please contact an actual medical professional. But that being said, tell us a little bit about your background and what you've got your degrees in, and so forth. So first of all, you described me as your uh, resident microbiologist. I'm not a microbiologist, um, despite <laughs> your uh, phrasing it that way. So um, I got my undergraduate in molecular and cell biology. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, while I was getting that undergraduate, I worked at Argonne National Laboratory. Mm -hmm. um, for about nine months as an intern, mm -hmm. um, where I worked on an antibiological warfare project. Mm -hmm. um, and during that project, what we were doing was we were looking, uh, we were trying to design an RNA chip to identify uh, uh, Bacillus anthracis, um, which is basically anthrax. Mm -hmm. From there, I went back to the, to the university and worked on an anti-cancer project, uh, cervical cancer. Um, and we were using animal models to look at antiviral agents to try to uh, knock down the cervical cancer. After that, I left and went up to Washington University in St. Louis, where I was there for two years as a lab technician, um, where I worked on cell biology of uh, a cancer-related gene. And then I got into grad school at Washington University my advisor moved to Vanderbilt. <laughs> During that time, I was looking and doing research and what my PhD project was, was trying to figure out the um, mechanisms by which uh, the organelles are inherited in cell division. After that, I left and did about a four-year postdoc at the University of Michigan, where I studied a process called autophagy, mm -hmm. um, which is involved in a lot of things, Particularly if you could turn the process on, uh, you can double the lifespan of every organism we've looked at so far. While I was there, I started teaching classes at the University of Michigan, fell in love with teaching, and after my postdoc was over, instead of trying to get an academic uh, position at a university, 
I went a completely different direction and became a high school biology teacher at an early college here in Michigan. And we've been very happy ever since. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so this is a good segue into a question I got from a follower named Mamacity, and she asked, what's the difference between a microbiologist, a regular biologist, a virologist, an immunologist, and a geneticist? So one of the things you have to understand is there's a lot of overlap in each of those. Uh, Let's start out with the most simple one there. That would be a biologist. A biologist is anyone who studies biology, i.e. life. And so even like a naturalist, a person going to a zoo, or a person uh, running a zoo, the park ranger, um, all of those would be, at least in part, considered a biologist. Anyone who studies biology and how life functions is a biologist. Your next one was a microbiologist. Mm-hmm. And a microbiologist is someone who studies predominantly microbes. In other words, bacteria. Okay. Um, now, uh, although I have definitely used bacteria in my studies... One of the things that we would use in our cloning techniques uh, with E. coli. So I've I've become very familiar with using bacteria as well as I've got several classes underneath my belt in microbiology. So someone who studies those microbes and how they function, um, how they cause disease and how they spread, that would be a microbiologist. Um, The third one was... What was, the, what was the third one on your list there? A virologist. A virologist is someone who studies viruses and uh, how they replicate, how they infect, and how they spread. Okay. Mm-hmm. Fourth one on the list was? Immunologist. Immunologist is uh, the study of immunology. So this is how the body's both innate and adaptive systems mm-hmm. um, that protect the body from diseases not only of itself but of viruses and bacteria so this is how your body fights back against Mm -hmm. disease and problems okay so you mentioned that you wouldn't say that you're a microbiologist is that because it was i'm a cell biologist you're a cell biologist okay so the the last one on the list was geneticist so a geneticist is someone who studies genes okay now any of those that we just discussed would also have uh interest and knowledge about genetics. In other Mm -hmm. words, DNA, RNA, how those things produce proteins Mm -hmm. um, and how those genes flow from organism to organism, et cetera. Okay. So Kilanova Gold asks, what's the difference between a virus and bacteria? (laughs) This is one that drives me insane because people... uh, (laughs) tend to think of them as the same thing, and they're definitely not. Okay. Okay. Let's talk our way down. Okay. okay. Uh, human cells, as well as all animal cells, are usually what we would know, call as eukaryotic cells. Mm-hmm. Um, they're much, they're about 10 times, 10 to 100 times larger than bacteria. Okay. okay? Bacteria are much smaller, although the ranges here are, are complex. You can have very, very large bacteria. You have very small bacteria. You can also have large uh, human cells and small human cells. Mm-hmm. Bacteria are a fair amount simpler than animal cells, eukaryotic cells. Although there's some fuzziness here and I'm not being 
perfectly clear. <laughs> That's okay. Bacteria tend to, because they're simpler, tend to divide and d- divide much faster. And when we talk about a bacterial infection, the problem here is our body will, as long as there's no skin punctures mm-hmm. um, and there's no way for it to get in, that bacteria is usually kept on the outside of the body and is entirely safe. The problem is when it gets inside and then it gets access to all of the sugar and nutrients that's flowing around in our bodies, it can rapidly reproduce and cause problems for the body. Mm-hmm. So now if we talk about bacteria, the next level down of simplicity would be a virus. Now a virus is simply a protein that has encased in it either RNA or DNA. Mm-hmm. And what a virus does is it actually injects that DNA or RNA into the cell mm-hmm. and uses the cell's own machinery to make more copies of its viral protein, the outside functioning portion of the virus. So is a virus alive? <laughs> <laughs> so this is one of those things that it all depends on how you define it alive. Uh-huh. Um, usually they're, you know, depending on, on how you're, you're phrasing it, uh, there's certain characteristics mm-hmm. that you have to have for being alive. Um, most of the time we refer to one of those characteristics is the ability to independently reproduce and viruses cannot do that. Okay. They basically have to inject their DNA or RNA into the cell Mm -hmm. and then they hijack the cell to do it. So it's because they cannot reproduce independently, they -hmm. are not usually considered alive. In addition, most viruses don't have the ability to produce their own uh, energy Mm -hmm. and so they're actually using um, the energy produced by the cell Mm -hmm. um, to do their biological processes so for those two reasons most biologists do not consider viruses alive that's nasty though what they do yeah Okay, so let's get down to the really nasty topic of the day, the Mm COVID-19. So can you tell us, um, I'm just going to also throw in there that we're recording this on March the 29th, and that what we're understanding about the virus is changing rapidly. So just know that this this question pertains to this moment in time. But what do we know about the virus so far? So I think one of the things that's interesting to address here is many, at least in my news feed, everything that comes up with coronavirus comes up with this weird picture of a <laughs> what looks like a soccer ball with little spikes off of it. Yeah, okay. the green ball with the red yeah, little the things Yeah, the color seems to be variable between what's going on. <laughs> so what you're actually seeing there, and I don't think it's actually the the specific coronavirus we're talking about it's it's a lo- it's a picture of a larger family mm-hmm. of viruses um, known as the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, for those that have been kind of listening to the news over the last decade or so, there have actually been three different coronaviruses that have uh, crept up. Okay, um, SARS, MERS, and now this COVID nineteen. Okay, those all belong to a family of viruses that are interrelated okay and so the idea that 
oh, this came out of the blue. No, I mean, we've been watching these viruses jump species and jump into humans and begin to spread. Uh, luckily, up until now, the COVID-19, we've been able to identify where and when that jumped and been able to isolate those individuals before it has had a chance to spread. Mm -hmm. And so it has never really turned into the public health worry that is currently with COVID-19. Now, um, if we actually talk about what is going on, you have that soccer ball Mm -hmm. with the spikes on it. Let's kind of explain what's going on. The, that soccer ball is basically a protein coat. Now, I, I, I hate, uh, most of us, when we think about protein, we think about steak. Yeah. <laughs> um, for a biologist, protein, if you say protein, we don't think about steak. Mm-hmm. Okay. What we think about is proteins are molecular nanomachines and structural units mm-hmm. um, that make up virus, bacteria, and humans. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what we're really dealing with there is these are molecular nanomachines mm-hmm. and the coat protein of the virus actually is the outer structural unit made out of protein that is the covering of the virus. Now right. that brings up the question then what's on the inside. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like I said, viruses are very, very simple. Okay. Mm-hmm. Largely, mm-hmm. although it's more complex than this, largely what is on the inside of that is the genetic material. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that genetic material has genes on it that tell the cell how to make the soccer ball protein coat. Gotcha. Okay. And so what's actually happening there is you've got this protein shell. On the inside is the genetic material. Mm-hmm. And then you're seeing the little spikes on mm-hmm. the outside. Um, those spikes serve two purposes. The first purpose is to attach to a protein that is on a human cell mm-hmm. or any animal cell. Okay. Now, uh, the shape of that outer spike is specific in a specific shape so that it can bind to and grab a protein on the surface of, in this case, a human cell. Mm-hmm. Okay. That means, and those those attachments are specific to proteins on specific types of cells. Okay. Um, in particular, that's a little more complicated than this, um, that protein spike is designed to attach to a protein that is specific to cells in the lung. That was going to be the next question. So... Well, let, 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 so, yeah. so what it's going to do is it's going mm-hmm. to attach. And once it can grab onto that cell, mm-hmm. it can then, uh, it actually has a, like, like I said, these are molecular machines. Mm-hmm. The, spike, the spike actually will then, once it's attached, will then pierce the outer layer, the cell membrane mm-hmm. of the lung cell and inject its genetic material. Gotcha. Okay. Now, there's two different types of genetic material that can be contained in a virus. Mm-hmm. One is DNA. Mm -hmm. The other one is RNA. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, viruses either have DNA or they have RNA. That DNA will then be injected and will hijack the cell's machinery to make more. Literally millions, Mm -hmm. sometimes billions of copies of itself. Now, uh, something that's kind of interesting here 
Uh, like I said, it can either have DNA or RNA. Mm-hmm. If it has DNA, then DNA is much more stable and immune to mutation. Okay. Okay. Um, that doesn't mean that it doesn't mutate. It just means that it mutates at a much slower rate. Um, RNA viruses, uh, since it's only a single strand, tends to mutate very quickly. So, mm-hmm. for example, influenza, uh, the common flu is an RNA virus. And one of the reasons why we have to have a different vaccine every year is because the RNA is so error-prone in its copying that mm-hmm. it is quickly mutating and changing. And so every year we actually have to have a different vaccination mm-hmm. in order to treat it. So this brings up the question, is coronavirus a DNA or an RNA virus? It is mm-hmm. also an RNA virus, meaning that it can mutate at a much faster rate than mm. slower uh, mutating, less stable DNA viruses. Gotcha. So that's one of the reasons why we're so concerned right now about the spread and the curve and keeping that flat is because the more hosts it has, the higher the chance that it'll eventually well, and, mutate. And that, and that mutation could come in different forms, right? right. It could actually make the symptoms less, uh-huh. the symptoms more. Right. Um, and both of those have consequences. Okay. That makes sense. So what do we know in terms of how... So you you mentioned that it's contagious. It, it's sort of like the flu in that mm-hmm. it can rapidly mutate. And we're not talking like the movie Outbreak, which I just saw yesterday, <laughs> where it mutated in like less than a week or something. And um, but But it is... It is something that we've we've been talking about just between you and me about how it's you're asymptomatic for so many weeks while you're shedding virus. So I was wondering if you could talk about what we do know in terms of what seems to be happening in in that like how long can you have it without really developing symptoms and how contagious is it? So let me see if I can answer that with more kind of a biological explanation mm-hmm. okay one of the things to consider in all of that is how much virus load you get at the beginning okay so let's imagine that you only get infected with one virus okay. one single viral particle now the chance there, there's lots of things that can happen with that mm-hmm. let's imagine it's one single virus particle okay uh, one possibility is that you breathe it in your nose and it gets caught in the mucus and you never get infected, right? The white blood cells crawl around in that mucus and eat it and it's done, right? Um, and so the more virus particles you get, the less chance that your immune system is going to catch it before it gets to the lung and is able to infect a cell, okay? And so uh, one of the things that is out there is that the virus can survive on surfaces for long periods of time. Well, that's only a tentative study. One of the things you have to understand is those were detecting the virus that did not say whether that virus was infected. So even if it can survive, it may not be able to infect someone um, because just exposure to the elements will mutate, will, will degrade that outer protein coat and mm-hmm. make it unable to be infected okay Okay. so even though that preliminary study was important the follow-up studies of 
how effective are they after a time period have yet to be done. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know. We know it can survive out there, but whether it's infective is a whole other situation. So uh, your question here is largely about timing and how long this takes. Mm-hmm. Well, so first of all, it has to get into the body. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, got, it's usually going to come in through the eyes or the mouth, mm-hmm. um, usually through breathing. And what you're going to do is you're going to breathe that in. It will or will not mm-hmm. uh, get stuck um, and never get to the lungs. If it gets to the lungs, it will or will not be able to encounter a lung cell. If it encounters a lung cell, if it encounters or does not, it has got to be able to attach and inject its RNA into mm-hmm. that cell. Okay? If you obviously are exposed to large amounts of virus, the chance of it actually attaching and injecting um, Mm -hmm. and getting its RNA into a lung cell increases. And so one of the things I think it's important to talk about here, uh, most people talk about this as an all or nothing thing. Right. Right. You know, if you don't wash your hands for 20 seconds, then you're a goner. Well, no, any washing is going to decrease the viral load that's potentially going to go into you. And so... You know, and I, I just heard this discussion this morning of, you know, washing surfaces. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, do I need Clorox? How much Clorox do I need? You know, how well do I need to wash it? And there's this all or nothing idea. No, anything you do is going to decrease the amount of mm-hmm. potential virus that could get into you. Don't just use your best judgment right. and, and, and clean as you should, but don't freak out. Um, so I... Uh, Going back to this question of um, infectivity and the the latent stage Mm -hmm. in which it's it's just shedding. And when do you start showing symptoms? So let's say that you just got a single virus particle Mm -hmm. in. It was able to attach and the immune system didn't kill that cell before the virus is able to reproduce. Mm -hmm. Um, The virus is now going to take over uh, your lung cell and begin copying uh, that coat protein and that spike protein, copying its RNA and building viruses inside of you. What's then going to happen is the virus is then going to try to get out because obviously it's not doing any good inside your lung cell. It's actually not doing anything there. And so it will either uh, escape the lung cell without destroying the lung cell or destroy the lung cell as it bursts the lung cell and releases all that virus out. Okay. Okay. So now that virus is, when it was in the lung cell, now it's coming out of the lung cell, okay? Mm -hmm. And now it's back in your lungs, Mm -hmm. okay? At that point, you have the opportunity to breathe it out. Gotcha. So as you breathe out, if there's virus in some liquid in your lung, and you breathe that out or more potentially cough that out, now it is out in the environment and that's what we refer to as shedding so if you actually think now you've gone from one virus to potentially a million viruses that came out Mm -hmm. virus particles some of those virus particles are now going to invade the nearby lung cells and redo this process with each within that person who caught it right okay okay Mm -hmm. and the it's going to continue to do that until it is attacked enough cells that now it's causing cell damage in your lungs, which is part of what you're getting when you get when you get symptoms. 
Okay. okay. So you can see that during this time in which it's just invading and being breathed out, that's what we call shedding. Okay. And at that time, you're spreading viral particles. Now, uh, part of your the symptoms you're going to see are also your immune system kicking in mm -hmm. and trying to get rid of those cells that are infected. Mm -hmm. And so both of those are symptoms. The current biological discussion and investigations of this virus suggest that from the time of infection to the time of showing symptoms is approximately 2 to 14, sometimes a little longer um, than that, depending on the amount of virus you got hit with in the first place. So 2 to, four, two two to 14 days. days. Okay. So for the most part, if you've been exposed to the virus, what they're saying is you need to go into quarantine for 14 days. If after that 14 days you're not showing symptoms, the assumption mm -hmm. is that while you're exposed, the virus never actually was able to invade a lung cell, and so it's gone. So this is not like the movie Outbreak, where the moment you come into contact with this thing, you're dead. It A lot of things have to go right for it to get into your yes. lungs. And then when it does start doing damage to your lungs, what what's the survival? Like, we were talking about this, too. The survival rate and who we're seeing a lot of anecdotal evidence mm -hmm. right now people are on twitter and they're like you know my husband slash father slash you know brother slash you know student whatever has it and they're in icu and so we're hearing a lot of these individual stories but when we're looking at the bigger picture what what seems to be the the symptoms and outcomes so let's look at it uh in a couple of different ways okay okay um first of all the data on this isn't exactly clear okay. and i'll be honest we probably won't know what the actual number is for two years however the current data we have we can parse and look at and try to figure out what's going on so one of the things we know is that if you show symptoms, mm -hmm. okay, that the mortality rate, in other words, the, the rate at which it's killing, is anywhere from a half a percent to 15%. Now, one of the things you should notice there, that is a huge margin of error. And we also have to consider, too, who's actually getting the test. Because they've been very, very cautious about only testing people who not only have all the right symptoms, but who can also prove that they were exposed to the virus in some way. So the tests that we're collecting are going to have a higher rate of being successful in that we've already put these strong parameters around it, right? Right. And, and one of the things that's been really worrisome here is we are, at least in America, we are testing so little because we don't have enough throughput on the testing process. But like you said, we're, most of our people are we're saying, hey, we're not going to test you. Yeah. Um, there are, at least the preliminary data suggests that there's a large population who is having the virus and has such minor symptoms mm -hmm. that they're probably flying underneath the radar. Right. Um, and so you would imagine that this fit high number, this 15% mm -hmm. is in areas where we're testing only those who we are pretty darn sure have it. 
and we're pretty sure they darn we're pretty darn sure they have it because they're already showing pretty strong symptoms. Right. And so if we were to just if everybody in America got tested, which would be insane and impossible, but 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 if they did, the the number of those who would succumb to fatality in this because of this virus would it would be really really low. We I don't mean, know. Okay, we don't know. So we don't know. Um, but and this is a point at which you start having to think about comparative studies. Uh-huh. Um, this thing is either ten to a hundred times more lethal uh-huh. than influenza. Okay, so it is worse than the flu. It is. It, its mortality rate is much higher than the flu. Okay, so um, there's been some questions, Mickey Foon. And um, Annie B were asking if we get immunity afterwards, and if we've already caught it, is it okay for us to go out and do whatever if we made it through? <laughs> okay. Um, now, understand. One of the things I did not list in my qualifications was right. immunologist. Okay. <laughs> um, now, having said that, I can give you some answer to that a rough ballpark would be um, fine <laughs> but uh the immunologists when they listen to what i'm saying are going to be really annoyed because i'm not being specific enough mm-hmm. um let me kind of explain what's going on okay mm-hmm. so let's imagine you have you got a viral particle in you yeah um and you get an infection yeah okay so what's going to happen first is uh humans have two immune systems an innate immune system and an adaptive immune system. Okay. okay? Um, the innate immune system is just basically looking around and gobbling up anything that doesn't look human. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the adaptive immune system is a really cool um, immune system that for the most part is only found in vertebrates. Okay. Um, and what it does is it literally creates almost in a randomized process, basically a spike similar to the virus. Okay. okay? But it's randomized. Okay. And then what our body does is kills off all of the cells that have a random receptor on the outside that will kill us. Okay. Okay. So in other words, it creates a randomized receptor. And because it's randomized, theoretically, it could attach to anything. And then we kill off everything that might touch us, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, that receptor is something that everybody's heard of. And remember, this receptor is designed to attach to things at random, okay? Mm -hmm. That receptor is called an antibody, okay? And different types of immunological cells, white blood cells, can actually produce lots of those, or they can present those, and, and there's lots of things that can go on. Um, but the important thing here is it's creating a very, only like one copy of every random thing it can touch. Mm-hmm. If it comes in contact with something that is foreign, okay, it remembers that and makes multiple copies of the cell that's producing that random receptor, okay, that random antibody. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is the first time you're infected by something, all of a sudden, all the random things that can, let's say, attach to the COVID-19 are now going to attach to the COVID-19. And 
those white blood cells are going to amplify. And so instead of there being one of those, there's going to be a hundred thousand or more of those. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now those will stay in your system. And what that means is you have cells with the receptor that can bind to COVID-19 that can kill it. Okay. They can get rid of it and can actually get rid of any cell that's infected as well. Okay. And so what this basically does is it creates a special unit of mm -hmm. your immune system army that is specifically designed to attack COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So let's return to your question now that we've discussed the biology. Right. Okay. If you now have had COVID-19, now you have a special unit that mm -hmm. is designed to take out COVID-19 if it ever sees it again. Okay. And that will maintain in your system for long periods of time. And so the chance that if you get reinfected, it will take out that mm -hmm. virus particle before you can have any symptoms and even before you can probably spread it is highly, highly like likely. So to return to your, your their questions, mm -hmm. once you've had it, you have a special military mm -hmm. white blood cell unit designed to wipe that out. Mm -hmm. And so the chance of you re-getting it is very low. Okay. Now, having said that, this is an RNA virus that is changing. Right. And if there's another round of it in a year mm -hmm. or two years or three years, yes, you could re-get get it. Now, having said that, you've already got a special unit that's designed to take it out or something similar to it out. And so your response will be much, your, your symptoms will probably be much less mm -hmm. than your first bout. Now, this is important um, because when we talk about the flu, there's always, uh, the flu is kind of the common one that we can come back to and talk about as comparison. Mm -hmm. um, if we talk about the flu, um, what we're talking about here is even though there's a different flu out there, we need to get revaccinated every year. Even though our white blood cells aren't perfect at hitting that flu virus, it does a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. um, because this is a novel new virus that almost very few humans have ever had coronavirus, mm -hmm. what it means is the symptoms tend to be much, much stronger mm -hmm. because we've never been pre-exposed to anything like this. So one of the questions, and I can't find the person who said this, but one of the questions was, why is this hitting certain people harder? And you just answered part of it is it seems because we we as a species haven't encountered this particular thing before, um, we're reacting in a very strong way. Our immune systems are, you know, well, it's it's, it's, it's just a, yeah. a, it's it's a new right army virus. We've right. never been exposed to it, so it's going to do major damage. Now you ask why? I think that the question you're talking about though is more about an age difference. Well, age, and then also there's this <laughs> there's this random term. <laughs> pre-existing, you know, medical conditions. Mm. And, you know, we read that, but because, you know, obvious reasons, I can't tell us a lot of detail about who these people are infecting. But I was wondering what your take is on that. What 
who who seems to be the most vulnerable right now? So epidemiologically speaking, um, one of the things that's true with all viral infections Mm -hmm. is there are two populations which are the most prone to problems. Um, The first one is the very young, purely babies and toddlers, Mm -hmm. and the very old. Um, Let's talk about each of those in turn. Mm -hmm. Um, When we talk about the young, it is because uh, they have very naive Mm -hmm. immune systems. In other words, they have not been exposed to a lot of diseases, and therefore they don't have the adaptive immune system that is designed to attack these things. And Mm -hmm. so they tend to be prone to real problems. Yeah. Okay. The old, um, as we get older, our immune system, although it's definitely not naive and it's been exposed to a lot of things, your ability to maintain your immune system decreases with age. And so old people actually have fewer white blood cells. They can't sustain a military uh, attack on the virus as well. Mm-hmm. In addition, as you get older, various parts of various of your cells don't function as well. And so you know, that's why we get old. Mm-hmm. Um, now, let's go ahead and take this in the route of the COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly with older people, they have less of an immune system. They mm-hmm. have less robust immune system. And over time, they've probably done damage to their lungs just from breathing. And so... Uh, particularly with old people, now that virus can cause more havoc mm-hmm. because the lungs are more degraded to gotcha. start out with. When we talk about pre-existing conditions, however, since this is, the virus can only, as far as we know, or predominantly infect the uh, lung cells. If you have problems with your lungs already, then that, then the symptoms are going to be much higher because the lungs aren't functioning appropriately. The other group that tends to be pre-existing conditions is those who are immunosuppressed. In other words, they have immune systems that are already low or lower than normal, so they can't stage a proper military battle against the viruses. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay, so Anna Banana wants to know... (laughs) Um, she wants to know, basically, what, what are science labs doing right now to try to figure out how to combat this? And, well, her question is, did they put everything on hold and are, are focusing on the virus? So I guess what's what's mm. the beat right now in the science world, how the world is tackling this? Okay, so there's lots there I, I can't answer, um, mm-hmm. but I can tell you what I do know, okay? Obviously, there is only a certain capacity. We only have a certain number of scientists and mm-hmm. a certain number of virologists. Um, I do know that many, whenever there's a big out- outbreak like this, the number of resources going into this area obviously increases. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, they have. So there's various avenues that both the scientific and industrial complex um, mm-hmm. is pushing. Um, one is we are trying to move over to produce more of the equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, that is used to treat the symptoms. Okay? Mm-hmm. So as the science science area, there's a couple of ways in which we're following this. Okay, um, You have the scientists who are epidemiologists who are trying to figure out 
how to decrease the spread mm -hmm. of the virus. And there's a lot of research going on there and a lot of push. As far as what's going on in the scientific laboratories to deal with this, there's three main routes in which they hit it. The first is detection. Mm -hmm. Okay, We needed a test to be able to test for this coronavirus. There's two main avenues that is in the testing. Okay, the first one and the the most quick one to develop is an R is a test for the genetic material. Okay? Mm -hmm. And the first step was trying to come up with something that could read and differentiate that RNA quickly. They're right now in the process of upscaling that. Usually, for a technician to take the RNA, run it in a PCR machine, and do the test to detect that that RNA is present, is a about, well, when I did things similar to this, though not with diseases, to run a 96, well, plate through this process would have been a day's work, okay? Right now, we're trying to automate that so that we can uh, do it much more quickly, mm -hmm. and there are automatic machines that are in the process of, of setting these, these testing up. The problem here is the RNA test is very... You have to have these big machines to do them, or you can have a very low throughput. Okay. Um, and that's one of the strangleholds mm -hmm. right now. The second part of uh, testing, however, and what we're trying to develop right now is an antibody test. So what you do is you create a test that can actually attach to the viral proteins and give you an instant like color change or banding pattern or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And if we can develop this antibody test, we can get it into, this, this is the type of test that can be done not only by big companies or small labs, but can be done at your doctor's office. Right. So like a, a test for strep throat. Yes. They take a swab and within like 10 minutes, they've got an answer. And in order to do large scale testing, that's what we need. And I know there's a lot of, research mm -hmm. and uh, scientific might going after that mm -hmm. okay so we talked about the epidemiological second one is testing for the virus uh -huh. okay the third one is uh oh, now i feel priests are fourth um the third one <laughs> is uh you know how do we treat it mm -hmm. okay um for a large part this isn't that big of a deal this is a, a pulmonary or uh, not a pulmonary, uh, uh, a respiratory disease, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, how do we treat it? We make sure the person can breathe until the body can fight it off. However, uh, what exact drug cocktails to allow them to breathe, to maybe decrease the viral spread, um, to decrease the rate at which the virus is replicating, mm -hmm. development of those type of medicines is the third way and the procedures for just dealing with the symptoms. The final one that we really need is we've got to get a vaccine yeah. for this um, because with a vaccine, we can prime everyone's immune systems before they get it, and that's where we really need to go. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned outbreak and <laughs> contagion <laughs> and all of these movies I hate these movies they <laughs> piss me off um because 
the way they represent this is as, you know, the person gets it within 24 hours, they're yeah. showing symptoms, and with 48 hours, they have a vaccine for it. That does not happen in the real world. <laughs> it just doesn't. Um, it takes, at minimum, a year and a half, usually, to... And that's like absolute minimum. You got to be able to figure out the vaccine. Then you've got to get it amplified. So you've mm-hmm. got to produce enough of it that we can actually distribute it. And then you also have to test to make sure the vaccine is safe and all of these things. Absolute minimum. We're talking about a year and a half. And so this watching these movies, we have this feeling like, oh, well, you know, this should happen in 48 hours or a mm-hmm. week or a month. We just don't have that technology, and it's absolute rubbish. Right. Um, so, speaking of headed into the future, Monty's mom, NC, asks, she says that her husband is an immunologist, and that a lot of people are having a hard time with the concept of a second wave. So, mm. can you tell us what a second wave is when we're talking about viruses? Sure, this is actually something that I'm really worried about. Um, so we're here in Michigan. Yeah. We shut down. I, I mentioned I'm a high school teacher, so I tend to think about students. Mm-hmm. When I first heard about this, I was a little bit, eh, you know, it's, it's we'll contain it in China. It's not going to get out. Mm-hmm. You know, if it does get out, it won't spread very much. And, you know, this is not a big deal. And then I started seeing the numbers Mm -hmm. and I started seeing the mortality rate and I got concerned. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I had some long uh, discussions with uh, one of the other science minded uh, guys I work with who actually is one of the robotics professors. And uh, we started looking at the data because he's a a data guy. And uh, I think we actually timed the shutdown in Michigan perfectly. Okay. Um, because we talk about what is going to stop this from spreading. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is a human disease. Okay. Mm-hmm. It is a respiratory disease. People get sick. They cough. They cough on other people. And those droplets of moisture which have tons of viruses in them you breathe them in Mm -hmm. and then they get into the lungs and then you get the disease okay uh the more you associate with people the faster this virus spreads okay Mm -hmm. and so really the best thing we can do is keep people away from other people and that is the best thing we can do to slow the spread of the virus. Gotcha. Okay. Now, this is my concern. So we know that the gestation, the, the lag period is about 14 days. So we are getting close to, in Michigan, 21 days since we've gone? Or is it 14 days? I don't know. They're all blending together. Um <laughs> The problem here is, let's say, oh, right around Easter, mm-hmm. we all go back to work and all go back to school. Do you think that's likely? Uh, 
You don't have a crystal ball, you don't know. I, I don't have a crystal ball, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, hypothetically speaking, we're back by so, Easter. So let's say um, the American public says, eh, I didn't get sick, Bob didn't get sick, Frank didn't get sick, this is all hooey, let's go all back to work. Uh-huh. Okay? If we actually look at the projection curves right now, we're in an exponential growth state. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, uh, what most of these do is they have a lag phase where it's very low. They have an exponential growth phase, and then they top out. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then they drop mm-hmm. down. Now, the reason they drop down is because um, either you've isolated all the cases, uh-huh. okay, and then they run their course, or it's because people develop immunity to it. Okay. Okay. The problem here is... Right now, it's in its exponential growth phase. What I'm worried about is we're going to go, ah, not a problem. We're out 14 days. I didn't have it. Bob didn't have it. Fred Hat didn't have it. Now we start congregating again. We're in our exponential growth phase, and then it starts spreading. Gotcha. Like crazy. Uh-huh. Um, and so the idea behind staying at home and keeping people isolated for long periods mm-hmm. of time is that we're eliminating the ability of the virus to move from one person to another and continue that exponential growth phase. So, of of course, I'm hooked up with a lot of historians on Twitter, and people are constantly referencing back to the flu outbreak, 1918, yeah, and how it... They they had a wave. It seemed to be okay. It subsided, and then there was like a second wave. So, yeah. are are we headed into like let's say that we are able to sit tight, stay at home, wait out until the curve peaks and then levels off. We go back to work. What is the second wave? So, if in this first wave we can isolate all the cases, get rid of it. There will be no second wave. Okay. Okay. Now, <laughs> what that means is the the period we have to wait to really do that. If we have to vary, is is going to be long. Yeah. Okay. Um, probably the estimates right now probably take us into the summer. Mm-hmm. If we can go into the summer, we may be able to isolate all the cases and get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's something they didn't do in the nineteen eighteen flu. Yeah. And so what happened is it came back, and now it had spread into a wide area, and when it came back, the devastation, I believe, was around a half million people. Mm-hmm. It was it was bad. Right now, we're worldwide already at a half million, I think is what I heard this morning. 400,000, I think is what I heard. Yeah. I don't know. You can check the news again. It'll uh, be different. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um and so, yeah, that's the worry is that we're going to pull out of isolation. Even when we do pull out of isolation, we need to be very vigilant about watching. Um, if I was to make a recommendation, which is not my place and not what I should be doing. We're not those have, kind of doctors. <laughs> um, one of the things we probably should go forward mm-hmm. for at least the next year is uh, monitoring people's temperatures. Yeah. Grab a thermometer. If you have a fever... Stay home. Don't go to work. Self-isolate for 14 days. Um, You know, watch yourself because if this comes back, we will have a second wave and it will be much worse than the first wave. 
that's what I was going to ask is people, the, what I've been reading is that the second wave tends to be worse than the first. Yeah. Well, it's because you've spread it farther. Gotcha. Okay. So I do have some questions about what we are currently doing. Um, so <laughs> the K2 together SSK, also known as Queen of the Trollops. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> um, so she wants to know how long it stays on clothes. Do, should you change after you've come back from the grocery store? Is that going overboard to throw your clothes in the laundry? Aaron, who is... Well, let's go ahead and answer that Okay, one. go ahead. The answer is we don't know. Okay. Like I said, there was that first study which looked at how long the virus was mm-hmm. there. And it suggested that this virus is stays around and is very stable for a long period of time if that turns out to be the case Mm -hmm. then yes this idea of you know maybe changing your clothes and taking a shower when you get home Uh isn't a bad idea okay if it's not and we don't know if it is like i said we know it persists we don't know if it's still infective if it's in fact if it's not infective then yeah you're wasting your time Uh and you're wasting your worry uh, we don't know which one it is. The other thing here is, and this is something you have to think about, even if it's on you, how is it going to get from your shirt sleeve into your lungs? You're not going to just sit I'm there assuming... and huff and puff on your sleeves or lick well, your sleeves or, or, or anything. Or your sleeves, right? <laughs> um, but your little kid might. Oh, come on. Our toddler daughter was... Sucks on my shirt? <laughs> I don't think so. Um... But what <laughs> what is going to come into contact with yeah. another person? Your hands. Yes. So um, at minimum, and I think you're, mm-hmm. the, the rational thing to do is make sure you're washing your hands. Right. Um, if it makes you feel more comfortable by going and taking a shower and changing your clothes, go ahead. Can't Couldn't, hurt. Can't hurt, but mm-hmm. it's probably not going to help. Yeah. Aaron... E.H.M. asks, what's reasonable in terms of wiping down groceries and packages when they arrive? I don't have an answer to that. Is it because you don't know or because it just drives you nuts? I, I, I don't know, and I don't think we have the data yet. Oh, okay, because we don't know if the stuff that's, that is, quote-unquote, still alive is actually infectious. So Right. And what is the chance it's going to get... So you grab a milk carton. Yeah. What is the chance that you happen to touch on the milk carton where the other person touched because the other person coughed on his hands and you happen to touch on the milk carton where they where they touched and you also happen to like lick your fingers and now it's in you in a high enough supply that it can actually get into your lung. Yeah. Do, do you see the... Yeah, so it it's more of a, if it makes you feel comfortable, do it. But there's really I, not I, a right definite now, yay but... or nay. Yeah. Okay. That works. Um, Let's see. I had another question. There's a lot of people talking about fabric masks that they're making mm-hmm. and they're donating. And um, we know we've... Everyone's heard that the N95 is like the mask you need, but in order to make yourself completely protected from everything, you need all that major gear, right? Like you need the disposable scrubs, you need the face, like there's, we, we, the normal human beings 
don't have that. The only but, people that need that are medical workers. Right. Who so are dealing with patients who uh-huh. probably have COVID nineteen. So would a cloth mask do you any good? A cloth surgical mask. Yes. No. Okay. Okay. Um. So remember we talked about viral load in the initial. Anything that decreases the amount of virus that you could get at the beginning mm-hmm. is going to decrease the chance of you getting the virus. Right. Okay. A cloth mask. So let's say you're around someone who you go to the grocery store mm-hmm. and somebody's there who is in day seven, doesn't have any symptoms, but they do cough on you. Mm-hmm. Okay. And those droplets fly your way and you breathe them in. Will a cloth mask potentially grab that water molecule before it gets into your lungs? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it is very possible that it will do that. Okay. Now, having said that, right? what is the chance that you're going to be in the store with somebody who happens to have COVID-19 and is going to cough on you? You can start to see the statistics. Right. Um, Now, there is some interesting data from Japan and Korea. As a culture, they, whenever they're feeling sick or or worried, they tend to wear a mask. It's just a cultural thing. Uh, I lived in Japan for two years. It was not uncommon to, to walk into the subway and see one or two people who were walking around with a mask. The infection rate in both of those countries has been extremely low. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we don't know if that is mask usage, but it is a statistical possibility. If you want to, go for it. Now, what I would do is when you get home, wash it. Uh, throw it in the washing machine, throw it in the dryer, uh, you know, wash it. There's no need to wear it at home. And this is like you ought to think about. We always think about disease as something that's out there and invisible. No. Disease comes from bacteria, and in this case, a virus. Mm -hmm. If there's no virus in your home, you can't get it. Right. It's not magic. It doesn't teleport into your house. (laughs) Right. It has to be brought into your house. Uh And the only way it's probably going to spread in your house is if somebody happen to breathe it in it gets in their lungs and now it's replicating right once as long as you stay home Mm -hmm. you're not going to get it right and as long as you're if you have to and you limit the amount of time you spend outside around other people and then you take simple precautions like if you want to wear a mask um and then washing your hands when you come in and out of the home you're not going to spread it and you're probably not going to get it that's good to hear. Um, somebody asked online of several people, why is it okay to go out walking? Because they said that you could still leave your home in Michigan to exercise, but we're not, we're, you know, pretty much everything else is shut down. And you and I were talking about this yeah. too, that the reason that you can be outside in a space, as long as you're keeping that certain distance, um, that the airborne factor isn't as big of a deal. Because you're outside, there's wind, you have a ton of 
air for this stuff to dissipate in. If it falls, it's going to hit the grass. If you're stuck at home <laughs> and you've got a yard and you want to go do some yard work, please go do it. <laughs> that is an extremely safe activity. For right. you to do. You're not going to catch COVID-19 by walking outside. Or just walking down your street. Even no, if you not. pass neighbors, as long as you're keeping... As long as they're not breathing or coughing on you, you're fine. So, <laughs> I've got one last question. I'm going to play a game with you. Writer girl 29 asks... <laughs> she says... How the actual blue hell do I get my almost father-in-law to take this seriously? (laughs) Just personal advice. How do we convince people that are just, um, you know, trying to be contrary and trying to test the boundaries? Like the person that went around licking deodorants the other day because God knows whatever mental issue was going on there. But um, what can we tell people to actually take this social distancing seriously and the stay-at-home orders seriously? That's a complex question. <laughs> but you're so good at people skills, Clinton. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about this a little bit. First of all, one of the things you have to realize is that people, if we're, we're not talking about kids, we're talking about adults. Yeah. They have the right to live and make decisions as they view appropriate, okay? They get to weigh the risks for themselves, and you get to weigh the risks for yourself, and you get to decide how you will react to it, and they also have that right, okay? If you try to yell at them, you are probably only going to entrench them even more Mm -hmm. So my suggestion, state your case and then shut up and let (laughs) them do what they're going to do. You're just going to cause more problems by trying to convince them of your way of thinking and your interpretation of the data. And since you're socially isolated, you're probably going to have to deal with them for the next three months. It's not worth it. I think preserving your own sanity is a good argument. And this is also a personal conversation that I just had with Clinton this morning. Because I wanted to get after a family member who kept going out of the house. And he's like, why? They can make their own decisions. It's not up to you. You can't control that. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I guess I shouldn't stress. Okay, you ready for the game? Sure. Okay, so it is a early modern podcast, so to speak. So I came up with a game, and I have here a list of possible remedies for flu and cold-like symptoms, okay? And this is a scattered list, and it's split between two subsets. One is... A set of early modern remedies taken from the 1652 English physician and the 1615 English housewife. Okay. The second set of remedies are being peddled today. Oh, gosh. (laughs) 
by by modern snake oil salesman types <laughs> as possible remedies to the COVID, or at the very least, if they're not cures, they've been peddled as ways that you can boost yourself so you don't get it. So you have to tell me when I read one of these to you, if it's early modern, so something- Early modern or modern. Or modern, yes. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready? <laughs> early modern or modern at the game. Yes. <laughs> Medical edition. Okay. A tonic of silver. Modern. That's right. Um, Jim Baker has been peddling a tonic of colloidal silver as a way to combat the virus. Okay, total. I I got, I, got, I, I got to go off on this one because this is hilarious. So uh, when I was an undergraduate, I mentioned that I was working in a lab that was doing um, research on cervical cancer. Yeah. Um, down the hall. Mm-hmm. was another lab that was doing research on colloidal silver. Are you kidding? No, dead serious. And uh, the, the lab was literally working as a lab for hire. Okay? Uh-oh. In other words, we'll we'll be happy to test it, but uh-huh. we will always give you the actual results. Uh-huh. And they were doing colloidal silver tests against everything. Oh, viruses, this bacteria, that bacteria, this yeah. fungal infection, this and this. They kept on giving back the data, and it was always negative data, <laughs> always. You know, and and the funny thing is, is they would they would they would say, well, this one was, uh, seventeen uh, percent effective, mm-hmm. and the control where we didn't put any of the colloidal silver was sixteen percent effective, and the error bars are five plus or minus <laughs> uh, either way. And then you would later read the literature yeah. and they would say it was effective. Seven versus six. No. Oh gosh, it was it was hilarious. But no, <laughs> yeah. Okay, here's another one. For a sore throat, drink a tea of honey and raisin. Ooh. Mm. I'm gonna go with modern. Nope. That was from the English housewife. But it sounds similar. We like drinking teas with honey and lemon and stuff to help soothe that. Okay. I imagine that probably comes from back then. (laughs) Probably. How about elderberry chews? Um, I'm going to go with uh, early modern. Nope. This is a goop product. Oh, no. Don't get me started. (laughs) Marjoram tea. Oh, I'm going to go with early modern on this one. <laughs> yep. Very good. That was in the English housewife, I believe. How about the oil of violets with poppy seed powder? Poppy seed flower, uh, powder is interesting. <laughs> Opium, huh? Um, <laughs> yeah, that might help. Um... <laughs> I have poppy seeds in my pantry, so... <laughs> yeah, I know. Going to go with I'm gonna go with early modern on that one. You're right. Yep, they use that to cure fevers, and yeah, it probably has some kind of opium oh, yeah. effect. Um, how about a <laughs> how about a remedy called wellness balls in the air? What? Yeah. 
wellness balls in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going modern with that one. That's another goop product. <laughs> How about germander water? And germander is a type of woody shrub. Uh, I'm going with uh, early modern on that. You're one. right. That's that a cold pepper. Um, how about oregano oil? Oh, I'm going modern on that one. Wow, you're so good at this. Yes. Um, Ben and Johnson, a pastor, has been touting the miracle cure and, um, the preventative properties of oregano oil. Oregano, not basil. (laughs) This next one is, like, probably my favorite that I found. A planetary-aligned alchemical mix of ground herbs known as power dust. Power dust? Yes. A planetary-aligned alchemical mix of ground herbs known as power dust. I'm going modern with this one. Oh, I thought for sure that would stump you. Yes. That that particular (laughs) mix of wording and stuff suggested modern. See? (laughs) I should have thrown more in. It's a company called Moon Juice, and that's what they're recommending. Moon Juice. Mm -hmm. Squeezed out of the cheese of the moon. Yeah, something. Okay, how about boxberry powder? Boxberry? Mm hmm. Okay, I'm going with early modern on that one. Yep. So that was also. What is boxberry really? Oh. Is there a modern equivalent of what the boxberry is? But here's how you would drink it. You would, it was um, out of, um, so you would, you would take the powder and in a, you would drink it in a warm white wine. And I quote, you drink it until you vomited blood and then you're well. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All right. Well, that's not the only elixir. Here's I've a read crowd. Similar directions. Here's a crowd favorite. Chloroquine. Uh, modern. Yeah, that's that anti-malaria drug that our president keeps thinking is going to fix this. Yeah, and that study is awful. Yeah, just don't do it, folks. Don't do it. Um, last one, a sage tonic. Modern. Nope, that was out of the English physician. It was supposed to help with chest diseases. Hmm. So, moral of the story, don't try any of these. This is not going to cure you. <laughs> Please seek a medical professional if you have any problems. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. No problem. This is great. And it means that we survived another hour and 15 minutes of being stuck together in this house. Woohoo! <laughs> All right. I have some things to tout here. Um, I was recently on an episode... Of the Fuckboys of Literature podcast where I talked about Mal Flanders. That was awesome. Um, I also want to promote a really great YouTube channel called Letter Locking. And you can follow them on Twitter. Um, they've just sent out a really great video on how to do some these awesome letter locking folds and seals with your kids at home. So please check them out. And um, hopefully I'll get some more of these episodes up and running it's been one heck of a semester for me so i appreciate your patience thanks again doc b no problem (laughs) all right everyone stay safe and well